Father, uh, we come to you broken this morning. Uh, there's a, a multitude of infirmities um, in this city, uh, in this nation, and around the world right now. Infirmities of mind and of um, of body, of, of, of spirit. And God, we look to you this morning. You, you lead us, you guide us. We look to Christ uh, who suffered affliction for us. Our eyes are on him this morning. Uh, Father, would you stir our hearts with affections for him? Lord, whether those are new affections or affections for the first time, God, would you, would you begin to stir this morning? Would you help us in our affliction, help us in our suffering, help us in our persecution to look to the one who suffered for us. God, it's hard, hard enough to endure suffering, but you're asking us to rejoice in it. And so as this comes as a hard teaching this morning, Father, would you give us eyes to see? Let us see the joy and the shared sufferings of Christ. Let us see the honor and not the shame. Uh, let, us, let us feel the sanctifying uh, flames uh, that you are putting us through, even right now, Father, in social distancing and isolation and limited community that we have. Lord, would you refine us? Use it, God, don't, don't, don't waste it. Use it to make us more like our Savior. In that we take joy. So would you teach us this morning, use this text uh, to help us endure. Father, I, I think of those all around the globe right now who don't have it as good as we have it here in the States where there's uh, government oppression, there's maybe uh, imprisonment, beatings, shunning from families. Would you be refuge this morning? Would you be that refuge and strength that only you can provide? And would you use your words from, from your scripture this morning to do that? Would you draw people to Christ this morning? In his name we pray. Amen. So, one of the things that I appreciate most about the Bible is its uh, attitude towards suffering, or, or maybe I should say its, its honesty towards suffering. This alone is the most compelling reason that I am persuaded that the author of this book is God himself. If I'm going to invent a religion and try to sort of gain this huge following of people, I would not dedicate so much time in my scriptures to the thesis that the leader of this religion would suffer so much and that the followers of this leader would suffer also. Yet this is exactly the approach of scripture. But for those of us who seek truth, appreciate this transparency that scripture provides us in the word of God, that suffering is coming. Indeed, suffering is here. 
We crave this honesty because all around the world, many who love the Lord are walking through seasons of suffering right now as I speak. Even we are walking through suffering. And even though it's God's choice not to fully explain all the reasons behind the various sufferings, what we get from Him, what we cherish from Him, is how to suffer, how to endure, how to hope. So let's do that this morning. Let's open the Scriptures, 1 Peter 4 verses 12 to 19, where God is going to prepare our minds and our hearts for those seasons that he's calling us to suffer for his name's sake. I've titled my sermon, Think It Not Strange. I get this title from the KJV translation, Beloved, he says, Think It Not Strange. And so I've given it the the subtitle, A Theology for Enduring Suffering and Persecution. Because I think that like, this is the, the way that we in, are able to endure suffering, theology, a study of God. Who is God? Understanding God and his purpose behind fiery and difficult trials. So you see, a, a misunderstanding of God in persecution will leave us confused and angry and disillusioned. And so this is what Peter gives us this morning, a theology for enduring suffering and persecution. What is God doing here? What kind of God does this? So in this text, Peter gives us five, at least five, I think, pillars to sort of hold up our theology for enduring suffering and persecution. All right, five pillars. And we're going to begin with the most important one. Sort of almost like a foundational pillar. So the first pillar in our theology for enduring suffering is this. It's basic. Is you are loved. So Peter starts this whole discourse out with this direct address of believers. And he calls us beloved. Beloved. He's going to give us some hard truths in this text. And he wants us to be grounded. It would be easy to fly by this word. We do it all the time because this word is used so much in Scripture. But he wants to lay a good foundation for building up our theology for suffering. Because this, sadly, is the first thing that we begin to question, isn't it? Does God really love me? So Peter directly addresses us with this title, Beloved. Not only because Peter has an affection for his readers, but because God, the God of the universe, has an affection for his children, beloved. A a direct address, like when you are talking with somebody and and you say their name, it's a way to sort of get their immediate attention, right? Saying someone's name makes an immediate connection between the speaker and the listener. Dale Carnegie said a person's name to him or her is the most sweetest and the most important sound in any language. This is proven. To say someone's name to them while speaking will make an immediate connection. Washington Post even did an article on the power of using a name. So so then I would say sort of multiply that when that person in that direct address 
uses a term of affection like Peter does here, beloved. It not only gets our attention, but it tells us something about the relationship between the speaker and the listener, beloved. Sometimes I call my girls baby. When I want to get their attention, I'll say, no, baby, listen to me, right? It tells them, it tells her something about the relationship between her and I. I, I would not pull Ronnie in my office and say, baby, listen to me. <laughs> that would be weird. I, I don't have the same type of affection for others as I do my children. So then the title or the name by which someone addresses you tells you a lot about how they view you, how they view the relationship. And so Peter calls us beloved. And it's rooted in this, this word that we all love, agape. It means you are the, you are the object. You are out there are the object of God's affection. It means that you are prized. It means that you are valued. It indicates a special relationship, especially between a parent and a child. This one word tells us a lot, and we should not pass over it too quickly. At the foundation of our theology for enduring suffering is the rock-solid truth that you are the object of God's affection. So, to the mother... Suddenly thrown into the role of school teacher with a curriculum you did not choose and a schedule you did not plan, you are the object of God's affection. To the unmarried person whose feelings of loneliness have only multiplied in this time of isolation, you are the object of God's affection. To the college student who had to move back in with mom and dad and has been taken away from everyone and everything that you love so dearly, you are the object of God's affection. To the married couple who struggles daily in this journey we call marriage, you are the object of God's affection. To the one isolated from aging parents due to this virus, you are the object of God's affection. To the business owner who lives in constant anxiety over the future of your business and the employees you so dearly love, you are the object of God's affection. To the person diagnosed with cancer or dementia or lupus or Crohn's or MS or any other chronic disease, you are the object of God's affection. To the believers around the world who are suffering persecution in jail or in prison or away from your family, you are the object of God's affection. This is the unshakable foundation from which we build our theology for enduring suffering and persecution. That the children of God are the objects of His unfailing love. That the God of the universe somehow loves us with an everlasting love that will not cease. Build your foundation here and never leave it. Fiery trials do not negate God's affection for you. This is pillar number one. Start here. Pillar number two. The second one is, is probably the most difficult one to grasp. I think this is why Peter puts it right after calling us beloved. The second pillar is this. Persecution should produce joy rather than surprise. 
persecution should produce joy rather than surprise. Let's look at the verses. Verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised, think it not strange, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Let me start with the surprise side of things, and then we'll deal with the rejoice side of things. So first he says, do not be surprised, sort of the title of the message. This is a, an imperative, a command. So Peter is commanding us in our suffering to think it not strange. Do not be surprised. Do not be caught off guard with suffering in this life. Listen, suffering is not the way that life was supposed to be but neither should it surprise us. We don't want suffering to be normal because we long for Eden again. The desire for a life without suffering is an echo of the once Eden that we so much enjoyed. This desire in all of us points us to the reality of what once was and what will be. So it's not a bad thing to desire a world free from suffering. That's what we're made for. However, Peter makes the point we should not be surprised in this life by suffering. If you've never heard this before or you need this to be reminded again, treat this as Peter's sort of advanced warning so that your theology and more importantly your heart is ready for it when it comes. As an inquisitive person, I'm asking why. Like, why should it be abnormal for the Christian, uh, not abnormal for the Christian to experience suffering? Or why should we think it not strange? Or why did God set it up this way? Why is it normal for suffering to happen in the Christian life? Why is persecution normal? And the answer is this. That this is how we are prepared for glory. We have to understand this about God. This has to be part of our our theology. That God tests us by way of fiery trials. This is truth. This is how our God works. This is what Peter says in our text, right? Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to what? To test you. Test here means to learn the nature or character of someone or something by exposing it or submitting it to a thorough and extensive testing. So many of you are going through thorough and extensive testing right now, and it's on purpose because testing proves the genuineness of something. That's what testing does, that's what fire does, it proves the genuineness of the object being put through the fire. And for us, that object is faith. It's testing the genuineness of your faith. And why is that good? Why why should we like that? Peter tells us earlier in this letter, remember? Way back in the beginning. In this you rejoice. Here he's telling us to rejoice again. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 
Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is why we are tested. So that this genuineness of our faith, the tested genuineness of our faith, ends up being a praise and a glory and honor to God, but for us, it's a thing more precious than gold. Continuing in faith through persecution and suffering is a precious thing. Why? Because it tells us that we are genuinely children of God. And that is more precious than gold. So God does this for the believer. He gives us the gift of knowing our faith is genuine by putting it through a series of tests and trials. This is how we enter glory. This is the path to glory through many trials. The book of Acts tells us that. Through many trials, we must enter the kingdom of God. The prosperity gospel, the idea that everything will just be fine if you just have enough faith, is a false gospel. It's the fiery trials that prepare us. It's the fiery trials that prove us genuine believers. And so therefore, suffering has a purpose. To test, to prove, to refine, to perfect, to sanctify. These are not accidental or meaningless or random trials. God does not waste our suffering. Every drop of it has a God-ordained purpose. He's preparing us for our eternal inheritance. This is how God works. And therefore, we should not be surprised as though something strange were happening to us because we know this about our God. This is how He works. And then Peter pushes the envelope now. He says that the alternative to being surprised by trials is to rejoice in them. This is challenging to grasp. This is sort of way out there. How do you do this? We don't simply endure the trials, the suffering. We are to rejoice in them. And I have absolutely no authority here. I'm only telling you what the Word of God says. So... He says, don't think it's strange when the fiery trial comes as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice. So here's the contrast to the surprise, and it is joy. How in the world do we find joy in suffering? Well, the the text tells us. Peter sort of makes two points that we can hang our joy on in the middle of persecution and suffering. First, he says, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. You see, suffering increases our relational bond with Christ. That's what Peter's point is here. Insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, suffering increases our relational bond with Christ, and that ought to be a great source of joy. We see the same reality between soldiers and Marines who go to war together. 
These combat units that experience battle together, the suffering of battle together, have this unbreakable relational bond. And I'd argue that there is no more greater bond than the shared difficult experience. So suffering is useful now, not only because it tests us and it proves our faith genuine, but it increases our fellowship with Christ because we share in his sufferings. As we suffer for Christ, we are more and more linked to Christ. That's the idea here. It's not only something that's testing our faith that's genuine, it's linking us more and more to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Not only does suffering and persecution increase our relational bond with Christ, but number two hook that we hang our joy on in suffering is that it increases our joy at the return of Christ. Look, but rejoice. Insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, why? That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The reason that we rejoice now is so that our joy when Christ returns will be increased. You see, these two words here, rejoice and rejoice, those are the same exact words in the Greek. But then he adds, and be glad when his glory is revealed. This is a different word. Some translations have that, uh, be, be glad and shout with exaltation. So the text is indicating that our joy will be increased. Our future joy will be increased because of the suffering that we go through now. That's Peter's point here. For now, our joy is hope, sort of mingled with sorrow and grief. Our joy then will be exaltation and glad shouts of joy because our suffering will be vindicated at his return. So joy now, exaltation later. Our suffering now serves to increase our joy later. This is why we love spring so much. Because when we go through the hard, cold winter, our expectation of what's to come increases. And when it gets here, we all shout with glad exaltation. That's what God is doing. He's increasing our joy. At his return. Look what Peter's doing here. He wants us to understand that there is a link between our joy and suffering now and gladness at Christ's return. Those that can rejoice in their shared sufferings with Christ now are the ones who will rejoice with exaltation when Christ finally cracks the sky. We don't enjoy suffering for suffering's sake. We rejoice in suffering because it is the evidence of our future deliverance. Just think about that. Suffer now with Christ, and that is evidence that's a link to our shared joy in Christ later. So then, suffering is not a threat of abandonment, but a promise of future deliverance. It's a reminder of the joy-filled promise of glory that is coming. May the pain and the struggle remind you of the sufferings of Christ and the multiplied joy that is coming at his return. 
Don't miss the shared, shared aspect here. Sharing Christ's sufferings now, share in Christ's resurrection at his return. You share now, you share then. You have joy now, you have exceeding joy then. It's a shared, shared religion. Share in Christ's sufferings now, share in his glory when he returns. That's pillar number two. The next pillar in our theology for enduring persecution is that persecution is proof that the Spirit of God rests upon you. Another proof, right? We, we experience this suffering and this persecution and we're all like, God has left me. But there's so many proofs in our suffering and persecution. And here's another one. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So here Peter gives us an example of suffering for Christ. It's not limited to insult. Suffering from Christ for Christ can be insults, ostracisms, beatings, jailings, death. Fiery trials are not limited to insults. They can be as mild as insults, as horrific as death. If you suffer in this way, Peter says, you're blessed. You're supposed to rejoice in suffering, and now we have to understand that we are blessed. Why? Well, the text tells us it's really explicit, right? You are blessed. Why? Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. When the Spirit of God rests on an individual, it's a sure sign that God's favor is on that person. Who would ever think that insults would be a sign of favor? This is what God does. Who would ever think that suffering is a sign of favor? Who would make this stuff up? This is God. This is how He works. Suffering is a sign of favor. The blessing is not the suffering, but rather the blessing is the presence of the Spirit of God on your life. Your willingness to suffer insult for the name of Christ is evidence that the Spirit is with you, right? It's not natural for us to be okay with being insulted. Therefore, if you accept this type of affliction, it is sure proof that the Spirit of God is on you. If you're okay with being insulted, being disrespected, being dishonored, being disgraced, being beaten, jailed, if you accept this affliction, it's a sure sign that you belong to Christ. Without a proper understanding of suffering, you might think that God has left you in your suffering. But Peter says quite the exact opposite is true here. That your suffering is a sign that God is with you. And man, look, look at the beauty in this statement. The spirit of glory and of God, it rests upon you. This, is, this phrase contains Old Testament imagery. Specifically, Isaiah 11, which is a promise that the Spirit of God would rest on the Messiah for his mission. Here it says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This is talking about Christ, the Messiah, coming from Jesse. What's it say about him? 
and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is the imagery that Peter is stirring up for us in our persecution and in our suffering. The same spirit that rested on Christ and carried him through his mission is the same spirit that will rest on us and carry us through our suffering. The spirit of glory, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now that is a blessing. The spirit rests on all who suffer persecution for Christ. Pastor Richard Wormbrand loved the gospel. He was a gifted evangelist. He was well known in Romania for his love for gospel ministry. He led the underground church in this communist-controlled country. And on February 29, 1948, on a beautiful Sunday morning, much like this one, on his way to church, he was kidnapped in the streets of Romania by secret police. And Peter Wormbrand was imprisoned and tortured for 14 years for his obedient gospel witness. And you can read about this in the book called Tortured for Christ. In this, Pastor Wormbrand said this, One of the great lessons arose from all the beatings, tortures, and butcheries of the communists, that the spirit is the master of the body. We felt the torture, but it seemed as something distant far removed from the spirit which was lost in the glory of Christ and his presence with us. The presence of Christ is our possession. He felt the torture, he felt the pain, but he was lost in the glory of Christ and his presence. The glory of the spirit of Christ is our present possession. And we have him in our suffering. He rests on us. Pillar number four. Persecution should not be viewed as a source of shame, but rather as an opportunity to glory in Christ. That's a long one. I'll say it again. Persecution should not be viewed as a source of shame, but rather as an opportunity to glory in Christ. This is verses 15 and 16. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter wants to be clear. He's not speaking of the kind of suffering that might come about due to sin. He's not talking about suffering that is just. He's talking about unjust suffering. This might be obvious But it needs to be said, not all suffering qualifies you for God's blessing and joy, right? If you meddle in someone else's business and ostracize for it, you can't claim suffering for Christ. If you steal something and are punished for it, you are outside the scope of Peter's teaching here. The only crime that we should be guilty of is our allegiance to Christ, We suffer for nothing else but for the defense of the gospel. And when we do this, shame is replaced with glory. Disgrace is replaced with honor because of Christ. The text says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, 
Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. See, the thought here is that whatever we are suffering, we deserve it. We deserve whatever we suffer because we are sinners. But now God would have us suffer for righteousness as though we're innocent like Christ. Therefore, it's an honor to suffer like Christ because we don't deserve to suffer like this. We don't deserve to suffer for righteousness sake. How are we worthy to suffer like Christ did? Sinners should not be allowed to suffer like this as though we're innocent. But God allows us to suffer like Christ did. So don't be ashamed of your suffering. Because now we're with Christ. We're suffering like an innocent man did when we're not innocent. It's an honor to suffer like the Son of God. For your allegiance to God. For your allegiance to His mission. For your allegiance to His Christ. Following Christ has the potential to bring shame. Maybe you feel ashamed because your friends and family have rejected you because you choose to follow Christ. Maybe you're, you're experiencing shame because your peer group thinks it's strange that you won't indulge in the same activities that they indulge in. Peter says, rather than feeling shame over this, we ought to feel honor. You see, Peter's calculation for honor is quite different than cultures. We should glory in the name of for which we suffer for. Therefore, glorify God in your suffering. So honor rather than shame. Pillar number five. This is, for me, a bit obscure. It's something I've never thought of before, and so which, is, which is cool about studying God's Word. We are continually learning. So pillar number five in our theology for enduring suffering is this. Be grateful for the purifying flames of persecution rather than the condemning flames of God's wrath. Be grateful for the purifying flames of persecution rather than the condemning flames of God's wrath. Let's look at the verses. For it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner. So, here we go. As good students of God's word, we're going to notice this word for at the beginning of verse 17. So think about Peter's logic. Don't be ashamed in your suffering because it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. What does that mean? What does judgment beginning at the house of God have to do with not being ashamed of suffering. Again, Peter's using Old Testament imagery here. The idea of judgment beginning at the house of God was often used in the Old Testament prophetic books. The prophets were warning the church, and in particular the leaders of the church, that God would deal with them. That the church and the leaders of the church were breaking God's covenant, and God was coming to clean house at the church first. He was going to take care of sin in the church first. So this is the backdrop of Peter's teaching here. But be careful. The, the language is the same, but the theology is quite different. It's 
doesn't fit the context, right, for this passage, for Peter to say that encouraging us in our suffering and of all of a sudden warning us of judgment to come because of sin. No, he is in the middle of encouraging believers to endure through persecution. So this is not a warning of coming judgment for believers. Judgment here is not condemnation for the believer. Judgment here is purifying the believers. The judgment that Peter speaks of here is simply a a judge-taking action, not to condemn, but to purify. And so now this becomes an encouragement. This fits the language of Peter that he used earlier, describing trials as fiery trials, flames, right, that are purifying us. The fire of the believer happens in this life, and that is good news, which is what Peter's getting at to encourage us. For the church... The flames begin now, and we experience these fiery trials, not as condemnation, but as a way to purify us. And so Peter's saying, be grateful for this, because you're experiencing the purifying flames now. You're not going to have to experience the condemning flames that is to come. Now this becomes a source of encouragement for the believer facing persecution because our fire is not destructive but constructive. Our fire does not ruin us but rather perfects us. And this is beautiful theology. So Peter sort of takes this logic to the next step in this passage. If it is true, and it is, Peter deals with the implication of this truth for those that do not obey God, right? He says, and if it begins with us, wow, what will happen or what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If God is going to allow his children to be insulted, disrespected, ostracized, beaten, jailed, beheaded in this life, how much more horrific is the judgment to come for those who do not obey God? For those who do not love God, for those who reject His Christ. The judgment is so unimaginable that Peter doesn't even answer his own question here. He sort of just leaves this hanging to wrestle with the answer, how bad will it be? If God's own children have to struggle so much, what is to become of those who aren't his children? If you're listening to this broadcast and you're not a child of God, this will be your unimaginable end if you do not repent and believe the gospel. Ask yourself, what will become of me? This is a warning for anyone listening. Now is the time to believe in God and be welcomed into his family. You'll be part of his household where you will never have to experience the condemning flames of his wrath. This is a warning. Repent and believe the gospel. Verse 18 is is simply a restatement of this truth in, in Proverbs form. It's actually Proverbs 1131, same concept. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Scarcely here doesn't mean that we're barely saved, 
but rather that it's through many difficulties that we are saved. That we have to walk this road of difficulty on our way to heaven. That we're in this ship and there's storms all around and rocks all around as we're safely in the ship of Christ as we go through this life. If we're scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly? So these verses come to us both as an encouragement for the suffering believer and a warning for those that disobey God. So this is our fifth pillar. In your suffering, as a child of God, be grateful for these purifying flames of affliction from God rather than the condemning flames of wrath from God that are reserved for those who continue in their rejection of Him. These are good flames. Peter brings it to a beautiful conclusion in verse 19. Therefore, since all this is true, since this is how God operates, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In suffering, deliver your soul to the safekeeping of God your creator. He created your soul and is capable of keeping it, of preserving it, of sustaining it through the most horrific sufferings this side of eternity. And trust your soul to a faithful creator. You know, we seem to think God knows what he's doing when all things are good. But when things get hard, we question God and his character. While the judge acts now in allowing suffering and persecution, trust him. You trusted him when it was good. Trust him when it's bad. Trust what he's doing. Trust the creator judge with the care of your soul. The word translated in trust here, this is so beautiful. The, the word in trust here, same Greek word that Jesus uses on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit, I entrust my spirit. This is what Christ did. Peter is pointing us to the cross as we bear our crosses in this life. This is what Jesus did as he endured the most horrific of suffering. He's telling us to act like Jesus. Do what Jesus did. Obey God and commit your soul to a faithful creator. Follow Christ and let God be the safekeeper of your soul. Only God is capable of saving your soul, so trust Him with it and continue to chase after Christ. As you suffer, you're presented with opportunities to reject Christ. This is the enemy's purpose in your suffering. He wants you to reject Christ. He wants you to walk away from Christ. He wants you to to walk away from your faith and say it's not worth it. Don't do it. God's purpose is to refine you, to prove you his child. You are the object of God's affection, and that's why he's doing this for you. Believe that. Trust that in this, he is preparing you for a day where you will leap for joy like a calf from the stall, screaming with glad shouts of joy and exaltation. 
May this be our theology in our suffering. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful word, beautiful text to sort of shake us up, shake us awake to what you're doing. You don't have this sort of soft love that just allows everything to be great and we don't grow at all. You love us. You have an affection for us that lasts for eternity. And so God is comforting to know that you're preparing us for that, that you're refining us, that you're perfecting us, that you're sanctifying us, that you're building us up, that you're putting us through a fire that's burning off all the dross and all the sin and all the laziness. Lord, we want to be like Christ. And if our desire is to be like Christ, help us to suffer like Christ. Help us to suffer well. Help us to walk boldly through the suffering. And and let it not only be an endurance of suffering or a boldness in suffering, but let it be a joy in suffering. Not because we're hurting or because we're in pain, but because our mind and our thoughts and our hearts are sent to Christ on the cross who likewise suffered for righteousness' sake. And so let us feel the increased relational bond that that creates. Let us us feel the the joy. Let Let it point us to the joy that's coming when Christ returns. Let us feel the presence of your spirit that rested on him and the cross. Let us feel that the spirit of wisdom and of might and of the fear of the Lord through this suffering. God, there's many, many people suffering right now that are listening to my voice. Would you give them strength to, to, to rejoice in this suffering so that they will experience the praise and the glory of suffering with Christ Would you do that in this body, Lord? As strange as that is, as hard as that is, as difficult as that is, would you bring joy in the suffering by letting us see more and more of Christ? It's his name that we pray. Amen.